Our final scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Lord, we thank you for your word as we celebrate and we reflect on it. Let the peace of your word settle into our very being. Amen. When I was in high school, I dual enrolled at the community college so that I could learn German. One day that year, my grandpa handed me a New Testament that's printed in German. It had been given to him by his grandfather, and now that I was learning the family language, it was appropriate, he felt, for me to have it. You see, several branches of my family were part of the massive migration of Germans, nearly one and a half million to America in the latter part of the 1800s. When I first received this Bible from my grandpa, I, I didn't have much of an appreciation for my heritage. It seemed natural to say Gesundheit when someone sneezed. I knew my dad made sauerkraut for family reunions and that my grandpa made spring early cookies around Christmas. And I had what is quite frankly an unhealthy love for Frankfurters. But I didn't think too much about why we did these things or what the story was behind any of it. Over time, I've learned more about the family history. I have a better appreciation for the cultural experience of my ancestors. Their foods make me think of family and belonging. I'm able to be proud of who we are and where we came from. Unfortunately, some of my ancestors were not able to share that same pride. German Americans had to leave behind their Germanness as the cloud of war settled over Europe. Propagandists from the UK crossed the Atlantic telling tales of the Kaiser and his Huns who were coming to kill our men and take away our women. They found an eager audience in the United States, people looking to blame any social problem of the day on immigrant communities. As the war raged, the persecution of German Americans intensified. This persecution came in a variety of forms. 
language was used to erase Germanness through the renaming of sauerkraut to liberty cabbage, frankfurters to hot dogs, and dachshunds to liberty pups. In a similar way, German foods like pretzels and fried potatoes disappeared from saloons and hotels. Although anti-German sentiment swept the nation, it was particularly strong in the Midwest and particularly well-documented in Ohio. Allow me to read a brief section from my thesis about the persecution that German Americans encountered. In Columbus, the library system sold its German collection for scrap paper, while teachers pasted over songbook pages containing German songs, and a public celebration was made out of the killing of Germanic dog breeds. In Toledo, an anti-German campaigner, Gustavus Olinger, who was himself of German birth, insisted that languages other than English had to be done away with. And Huron, a man was made to publicly salute the American flag. A similar incident occurred in Delphos when five businessmen were forced to pay respect to the flag under threat of hanging. Another coerced show of loyalty occurred in Canton when a shop clerk was wrapped in an American flag, dragged through the street, and forced to buy a $50 Liberty Bond. In Cincinnati, a German instructor was commended for censoring his own book. Not even the church was insulated from such ethnic violence. German Methodists, who had their own conferences that were presided over by Methodist Episcopal bishops, were forbidden from preaching or praying in German. Likewise, the Apologist, a German Methodist publication, had to file translations of their articles with postal authorities and publish news about the war in English. Distrust of German Methodists ran deep in the church. One Midwestern bishop collaborated with the Secret Service to gain the trust of a young German-born minister in order to entice him into making unpatriotic statements. Meanwhile, at the Methodist-owned Baldwin-Wallace College located in Berea, Ohio, nine bishops suggested the removal of the president after 150 students petitioned for his removal because he had failed to condemn Germany's role in the war. Additionally, sermons calling for the deaths of Germans thundered out from the pulpits. In Cincinnati, one prominent churchman is reported to have declared, there are not enough telegraph posts in Cincinnati to hang all the German Huns that should be hanged. The involvement of the church in the war went beyond attacks on German Americans. The clergy gave a veneer of morality to the entire affair. They were the ones who gave blessing to this bloody business. They, in large part, were the ones responsible for mobilizing the American people to go to war. As the troops went to Europe, the clergy went with them. Some, like Harry Emerson Fosdick, went as chaplains. Others, like Ernest Fremont Tittle, went as secretaries of the YMCA. Meanwhile, the clergy back home continued to drum up support for the effort. Bishop Henderson of Michigan 
decreed that every church must have an American flag in the sanctuary, and he made supporting Camp Custer the primary mission concern of the conference. But those clergy, like Harold Rotzel and A.J. Musty, who held to nonviolence, soon found themselves run out of their churches. It was in this hateful environment that German Americans had to find a way to belong, the easiest path being to assimilate, to leave behind the things that made them German. So it was that my great, great, maybe great uncles, George and Ernie, made the decision to go fight in the war. These children of immigrants broke their mother's heart by going back to Germany to kill their cousins. I'm thankful that I do not know what it was that my family encountered during their service, but we do have the words of those clergymen that went to Europe. And I believe it's essential for us to hear the firsthand accounts of those who saw the horror of the war. Harry Emerson Fosdick provides a witness to the war in an Armistice Day sermon from 1933 titled, The Unknown Soldier. He speaks about his involvement in the war by saying, I lived with him in his dugouts in the trenches and on destroyers searching for submarines off the shores of France. Short of actual battle from training camp to hospital, from the fleet to no man's land, I, a Christian minister, saw the war. Moreover, I, a Christian minister, participated in it. I, too, was persuaded that it was a war to end war. I, too, was a gullible fool and thought that modern war could somehow make the world safe for democracy. Now, right away, Fosdick has let us know where this sermon is going to end up. He no longer believed in war as a positive force. So let us keep reading some of his experience to figure out why that might be. He recounts his own experience of sending soldiers off to their death when he says, One night in a ruined barn behind the lines, I spoke at sunset to a company of hand grenaders who were going out that night to raid the German trenches. They told me that on the average, no more than half a company came back from such a raid. And I, a minister of Christ, tried to nerve them for their suicidal and murderous endeavor. I cannot imagine the weight of that night on Fosdick. I cannot imagine knowing that half the people in front of me were likely to go die, not as witnesses to Christ, but instead for the sake of land and power. Elsewhere, he recounts a story shared by an infantry officer who says, I can recall a pair of hands which protruded from the soaked ashen soil like the roots of a tree turned upside down. One hand seemed to be pointing at the sky with an accusing gesture. Floating on the surface of the flooded trench was the mask of a human face which had detached itself from the skull. This grotesque scene 
conveys the horrors which were the daily realities of the front lines. A reality that took a toll on soldiers that would haunt them. Of those who believe there to be glory in war, he asks, Did you ever see them? Did you look, as I have looked, into the faces of young men who had been over the top, wounded, hospitalized, hardened up, four times, five times, six times? His own experiences are corroborated by Tittle, who observed the battle at San Miguel. In a letter to his wife, Glenna, Tittle describes the scene of the battle by writing, the horizon was lighted up by flashes of fire, the flashes gradually spreading and uniting until they became one continuous flickering flare. They were followed by violent concussions that steadily increased in rapidity and intensity until the uproar was as runaway freight cars rushing to destruction. To see the battle in the distance was one thing, but eventually the wounded soldiers came back from the battlefield. Tittle was called upon to unload bodies from trucks. Then, as a YMCA secretary, it was his job to provide comfort in any way possible. He describes what he saw in the letter to his wife by writing, I saw, for instance, a boy with his nose shot off sitting bolt upright reading a newspaper, and another boy with a bad leg wound sitting on a bench waiting his turn on the table and meanwhile calmly smoking the cigarette I gave him and laughing all over his face. And what was the point of this suffering and death? Why was a generation of young people sacrificed on the altar of war? So that the colonial powers of Europe could have more land? So that the rich could get richer? Nearly two decades later, Tittle would look back on his experience and recall, when I was lifting horribly wounded men out of the ambulances, I registered a vow that if I were permitted to live, I would devote the rest of my life to the cause of peace. Fosdick joined Tittle in devoting himself to the work of peace. He concludes his sermon on the unknown soldier by writing, At any rate, I will myself do the best I can to settle my account with the unknown soldier. I renounce war. I renounce war because of what it does to our own men. I have watched them come in gassed from the frontline trenches. I've seen the long, long hospital trains filled with their mutilated bodies. I've heard the cries of the crazed and the prayers of those who wanted to die and could not. And I remember the maimed and ruined men for whom the war is not yet over. I renounce war because of what it compels us to do to our enemies, bombing their mothers and villages, starving their children by blockades, laughing over our coffee cups about every damnable thing we have been able to do to them. I renounce war for its consequences, for the lies it lives on and propagates, for the undying hatred it arouses, for the dictatorships it puts in place of democracy, 
for the starvation that stalks after it. I renounce war, and never again, directly or indirectly, will I sanction or support another. Like the prophet Isaiah, they came to know that the kingdom of God is a, wor is a world where war will cease to exist. They had believed that the great war was the war that would end all wars. Now it was their chance to make sure that that would be true. And so out of the trauma of war blossomed beautiful theologies of peace, theologies focused on the nature of God and the Imago Dei, in 1931, Tittle wrote a sermon called, Christ or the Sword, Which? This sermon gives us a glimpse of the way that pacifists in the interwar period understood the nature of God. Tittle asks, do pacifists refuse to acknowledge that physical force is the ultimate power in this world? To which he provides this answer. They certainly do, and so did Jesus who staked his whole life on the conviction that what, is, that what is ultimate power is the love of God. In other words, Tittle knew that faith in might is misplaced. It is only faith in the love of God, which is a faith in the ultimate power. He follows the logic of this position to state, to say that war is inevitable is, of course, to deny the existence of the God in whom Jesus believed. In other words, if we truly believe in the sovereignty of God, then we must believe in the power of God's love to change the world. We do not bend to the powers of this world for the sake of convenience or short-term goals. But as the world ramped up for another war, some Christians renounced their pacifist position. People like Reinhold Niebuhr accused those who held to their convictions of being too naive and sentimental. In response, A.J. Musty once again articulated the reality of God's love. In his book, Nonviolence in an Aggressive World, Musty writes, the Christian religion has something to say about the nature of the universe, of God. Jesus put it in the simple and human terms which he constantly used, saying, God is Father, God is love. If this is more than a form of words, an incantation which gives us a comfortable feeling inside when we repeat it, it must mean that the most real thing in the universe, the most powerful, the most permanent, is love. As we see, the faith of pacifists is not naive. It does not deny that there is power in this world. It does, however insists that God is the ultimate power. It insists that the core of God's nature is love, and it insists that nothing can triumph for long over the power of love. In saying that God is love, we affirm that we are called to embody God's love in this world. So it was that the pacifists of the interwar period set about naming ways that we could embody the love of God in this world. They decried the forces of hatred and greed that led to war. They spoke of the dangers of nationalism, 
They denounced economic protectionism and trade wars that valued personal enrichment at the cost of others. They warned about the xenophobia that dehumanized people labeled as others. Because underlying these policy positions was a theological commitment to the Imago Dei, the image of God. These pacifists knew that all people are made in the image of God. They knew that because all people are made in the image of God, we all are members of the family of God. The lesson to be learned from this theology is that we must treat all people like children of God. We must be committed to the welfare of one another. We must resist the tribalism and the fear-mongering that causes us to deny the Imago Dei in one another. It deeply pains me as a historian and a Christian that a century on from the Great War, we have failed to learn from the lessons of our past. We see the resurgence of nationalism around the globe. Economic protectionism is returning in a way unseen since the 1930s. Xenophobic rhetoric is causing our nation to abandon compassion. Rather than leaving war behind, we have spent the last century perfecting the art of killing. We have mechanized and sanitized murder so that it is easier for us to ignore the fact that our constant wars push us further away from the kingdom of God. On this day, dedicated to peace, it is time for us to repent. It is time for us to recommit ourselves to turning the weapons of war into instruments of life. Amen.